0: Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show.
1: Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here as always with David Scott. Pleasure to be back, Paul. I realize today this is our 50th episode of the podcast. Maybe at the end, uh, we'll have a chat about some of the, the highlights we've been, uh, we've had over, o- over the last year and a bit. Uh, it's a little bit tiring uh, when I realize that. Um, look, it's reporting season for corporate Australia. Um, there is lots happening and to talk about where the market's at. Uh, and how everyone's going is uh, one of the country's leading ASX analysts. That's so David Cassidy, uh, equity strategist at UBS. Welcome on the show, David. Nice to be here. Uh, look, we've packed agenda. Uh, we're going to t- talk about the ASX, obviously. Uh, we'll just touch quickly on what's happening with uh, North Korea and the US. Um, we'll look at this continuing picture of low volatility, um, particularly in US stocks, um, extraordinarily tight trading range. Um, for the S&P 500 um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, We'll uh, go through what uh, David is looking at uh, closely this reporting season. Uh, We'll have a quick chat about Amazon and its potential uh, impact on uh, local retailers. And we'll also talk resources. Um, So there's quite a lot to get through. And in all of that, I'm going to try and not rush it. Let's get straight to the ASX. Uh, David, uh, trading in a fairly uh, close range um, this year so far, hasn't it?
0: It has, yes. I think um, what we're seeing is Australia present itself as a bit of a laggard in in a global context. I think there's a couple of reasons for that lacklustre or range trading performance. I think, firstly, the strength of the Aussie dollar is something of a headwind. And I think also the sector mix in Australia. I think you'd summarise that as by saying not enough tech and too many banks has also been a drag. Nicely put. Um, But I think by... um, Year end, we should see the market higher, but probably not a lot higher than only probably a couple of percent higher, in my view.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you see any catalysts for a volatility, um, and um, what that might? And maybe you can talk about what that might look like if we do get a bit of it.
0: Well, I think only to say, particularly from the perspective of, of the U.S. market, as you outlined, the, the, the lack of volatility is probably unsustainable. Uh, I, I still think we're firmly in a bull market, but even in bull markets you have corrections, so I'm not exactly sure what will be the catalyst, but I think at some point over the next three to six months, you have to expect some sort of correction or increase in volatility, but I do firmly believe the primary trend is still up for the balance of this year and probably well into next year.
1: Yeah, right, Um, and can we just like talk a little bit about um, what might happen, because there have been some pretty interesting scenarios painted um, uh, by various analysts. Um, over the impact of um, this low volatility environment because shorting volatility uh, has become a really popular trade. And even, I think, uh, with some retail investors, uh, mums mom and, and dads uh, shorting the VIX, right. um, you know. Um, so how might – what do you think the impact of that might be if we do see, you know, you see the market start to roll over a little bit in, in, in globally?
0: Well, I think all you're really seeing with the implied volatility indices is a manifestation of the lack of physical volatility in, in the market. And while I said, I think that's unsustainable. I do think it's telling you that we're still firmly in a bull market. If the market was still moving up, but not with a volatile trend, I'd be worried that we're sort of close to midnight on the, on the bull market. But I think what it's telling you is, well, firstly, we're overdue for some sort of correction, but also is telling you the macroeconomic environment is still very benign and therefore I think we're a long way from the end of the bull market if you get my my sort of um, gist on that.
1: Absolutely. Um, uh, David, um, you know, looking at this on a day-to-day basis um, and, you know, from where you sit, you're trying to find the interesting things that are happening on on a global level (laughs) and uh, lately there's been not much, has there?
2: No, it's uh, it's been a little bit difficult to go and find, I uh, you know, piercing stories are going to capture people's imaginations when you have these uh, mundane movements. We saw uh, up until uh, a couple of days ago, we had a run in the, uh, the Dow, I think it was uh, eight or nine consecutive days up in a row, but just very, very small gains, nothing to get excited about. Um, as for the catalyst uh, for uh, some sort of uh, volatility, um, obviously, this uh, this method of uh, shorting VIX and then adding to long positions in physical markets does run the risk that when some sort of volatility does pick up, you might see a, an outsized move initially. Um, and of course, uh, the other thing we've all maybe looked maybe at, you can
1: just explain that, like what, what exactly
2: might happen? Uh, well, basically, you've got leverage on two sides. So you're you're selling uh, selling volatility, um, taking that income, then putting into the physical market. Uh, so you're you're short and long so volatility picks up uh it causes an unwind of those positions um and when you get that at the same time simultaneously uh can lead to some outsized moved in markets
1: yeah and um, uh, it should be um it'll definitely be um something to watch because when it does move uh, I mean you know it, although this week um and I'll turn to North Korea quickly, we did have the you know a very small pullback in global markets uh this week when um Basically, uh, the North Korean regime threatened to um, launch a missile strike on Guam, which is obviously U.S. territory. And this came hours after Donald Trump talked about fire and fury, um, the likes of the likes of which has not been seen before. That's what he was sort of threatening to unleash on North Korea. And we had a small little bit of risk off uh, during the Asian um, trading session Um, now look it's been a while David since we've seen we've stared down this kind of uh, risk um, in markets is reasonably significant geopolitical risk um, now while it's still pretty highly unlikely i think in the minds of most sensible people that anything's really going to happen here um, but w- what's on your mind in terms of um, uh, the market uh, w- when when you look at the situation
0: oh I think there are obviously these sorts of geopolitical Risks are very hard to estimate or, or quantify from a fundamental perspective by definition. Um, as preposterous as it may sound, even though this may be the catal- catalyst for a correction, I'd still presume you're dealing with two rational actors, as, as difficult as i to believe. <laughs> uh, so, from that perspective, um, if, if we did see any correction based on this sort of geopolitical tension, I'd, I'd probably be a Prepared to chip away at it from 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 the buy side. Um, obviously, there's a fair bit of tail risk there in the equation, mm. but I think from it's more likely not this this risk fades in due course, and I'd probably be inclined to focus back on the fundamentals, but, which I think is still pretty good.
2: Yeah, Dave. Yeah, it's. i d I've been thinking back over the, the times of uh, you know, when I was trading uh, back in the day and whatnot. Uh, and there's been instances in the past where we've seen. Uh, Concern around the Korean Peninsula flare. I remember distinctively one time I was sitting there late on a, on some afternoon uh, during the week and there was, uh, North Korea was attacking South Korea with, uh, with short range missiles onto an island and, uh, there was all these headlines going up saying that, uh, houses were on fire on this island and whatnot. And even then that, uh, after that occurred, there was no real, no murmur around markets. It just, uh, it came and went and then no, no, things come back down. And that's why I think you haven't seen too much of a reaction this time, but, Obviously, you know, it's a, an incredibly large tail risk, as David uh, pointed out, too, that uh, if something did escalate, and obviously the language between the two sides is uh, is escalating at this point. But, you know, track record of both parties uh, suggests that, you know, the end goal probably won't be that we're going down that track where there's going to be, like, some sort of, uh, you know, bigger event. But obviously there is a, a clear risk that, uh, that that could occur.
1: Yeah, and um, I think, you know, obviously clear implications there, if anything did unwind, you know, for supply chains, for uh, shipping movements, um, for, you know, um, uh, what what role China plays, um, all of that kind of stuff. They're all in, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you know, it's an outlier, very much an outlying scenario at the moment, but there are all sorts of these unanswered questions. It's not like for example an election where you have a sort of binary result and you know there's a playbook for what you know one result looks like and then what, what the other looks like it's, it's not like that it's uh, there's a whole a lot more moving parts so it's a much much harder to um to i suppose uh see where, where this might end up
2: yeah it is the, the key difference this time too as well is that uh this we're talking about nuclear capabilities on this occasion, and that's obviously a substantial step up from uh, from just general missiles and whatnot. So that's obviously that's uh, creating a li- little bit more nervousness in the market than what would utterly would normally be the case.
1: Well, let's talk about something um, back uh, in uh, the land of um, relative normalcy. Uh, it's reporting season, um, and um, uh, let's uh, have a quick look, um, uh, David. Uh, the Australian economy has been looking pretty good. Um, it's starting to pick up uh, the last uh, sort of six months. Um, I think the evidence is there. Um, so how do you think uh, uh, this is going to play out for uh, for the major listed companies?
0: I still think it's a mixed environment where I think stock specifics or industry specifics are going to dominate. I'd still describe the economy as muddle-through, um, despite the surprisingly strong business confidence readings we're getting at the moment, I think if you look at the broader data set, I'd still encapsulate the economy or describe the economy as being subdued, not terrible but not great. Uh, so and I think we're also seeing that, even though it's just early days in the reporting season, uh, it's been you know fairly mixed, not terrible, but not great, and surprises have been fairly stock-specific, hard to really, at this stage, uh, draw out any, any, any massive thematics. So... Um, I think a lot of preoccupation is sort of uh, engaged in working out whether the economy's about to collapse or to accelerate. I think probably the reality is probably neither. Yeah. <laughs> probably going to muddle through at a pace that's maybe a little bit better than what we've seen over the last three to five years, but nowhere near as good as what we're used to over the last 20 to 30 years.
1: It's a really interesting question. You mentioned business confidence mm. um, and, and probably one of the reasons that um, we're modelling through is the subdued consumer uh, outlook. Mm. Um, so, how do you reconcile that, and how do you how do you think about um, the impact on, on on companies?
0: I think it's a little it's a complex issue, that, and I think I haven't really reached a, a solid conclusion on what's going on. But I think all around the world we're seeing it's a little bit of a dichotomy of what's called soft data. Let's call that business surveys versus the hard data. I think perhaps. What's going on there is just to my comment that things are probably a little bit better than businesses have been used to over the last few years. Not a lot better, but I think most businesses are seeing things a little bit better, and that's reflected in quite a sharp pickup in the business surveys. The way that the nature of how they work, Uh, so I think that's happening. Um, I think also businesses have a couple of advantages over consumers in that they don't have the debt burden that Australian consumers have, and I think. The problem that the consumer has or one of the problems apart from debt is low wage growth. That's something of a virtue or or, or a tailwind for the corporate sector. So I think that's also at play. But you haven't really seen this sort of divergence between business and consumer confidence probably for more than 25 years. So it's it's interesting.
1: Yeah, it's really extraordinary when you look at Mm -hmm. the charts. Um, And we must – um, try and uh, make sure that we uh, include some of them when we um, publish the, the the podcast on the site. And David, um, you've been looking at this trend and uh, uh, for all the way through the year, um, and extraordinarily, it just seems to be strengthening. Uh, we've got you know um, post GFC highs in business confidence and uh, consumers just sort of ambling along.
2: Yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's strange. It uh, it has been seen in the past, rarely on my dad, but uh, it has been seen in the past. And generally, what you see is um, when business confidence is rising, generally it leads uh, consumer confidence. Uh, I think the the thing that is driving this wedge at the moment is uh, is incomes, income levels, disposable incomes uh, for households that we've seen in the the latest Hilbert survey uh, have gone uh, flattened out or actually gone slightly backwards over recent years, um, whereas the uh, the corporate sector have uh, you know. Particularly, uh, we're seeing with the material sector, uh, with the uh, the strength in commodity prices and uh, and strong volumes as well, has, uh, has really delivered a, a boost to income. So that's helping to go and make things look a little bit better for businesses than what you'd say for households. There are uh, they're looking and saying, well, my share of the uh, of the pie isn't uh, isn't growing. That sort of uh, that strength, and it probably explains why there's such a uh, divergence between the two groups.
1: I think one of the things I-, I wrote about this earlier in the year when we had that massive terms of trade spike. Um, and we saw the surge in commodity prices, um, uh, both coal and uh, iron ore, uh, earlier in the year. And you saw this big surge in profitability. It was very short term. But I think one of the things I was pointed out at the time is like you, it would be absolutely crazy as a business to um, to to fix your ongoing co- um, costs um, on a on a short term spike like that. Like it's just not sensible. Um, however. The, when the trend does seem to be strengthening um, for companies uh, in terms of profitability and earnings, I think there's a natural a point at which it becomes a question, well, okay, now, really, how does this start to transfer to households? Um, and I think that's going to be a really interesting question Over the, um, for, um, for, if you like, the business um, industry or business lobby, like folks like the BCA may start getting questions about this, you know, um, because if confidence is, is uh, surging ahead, but um, people are still feeling a bit stuck in the mud, um, there's a clear disconnect there, and I think um, you know some some parts of the corporate sector pro- probably have some uh, might start to get some uh, increasingly tough questions from the floor. Um, let's look at uh, quickly at um, uh, some specifics. Um, the, the big uh, company that reported this week, obviously CBA, been in the news for all sorts of reasons. Um, this money laundering debacle um, uh, which they're uh, you know moving very swiftly um, to um, to try and address uh, but David uh, let's look at the result first. Um, uh, what did you think?
0: well I think the I think it was a reasonable result that for, for the first point um, I think probably the most remarkable uh, sort of metric was the low level of bad debts bad debts down again to not quite all-time lows, but not far away. Uh, very low bad debt charge, which is telling you the economy's, if not booming, it's in reasonable shape, and certainly it's a very benign backdrop. So I guess that was the the the, the standout for me. Uh, the net interest margin was still relatively flat. Um, I think we haven't seen the full benefits of the repricing we saw a, a few months ago, or a couple of rounds of repricing. So. I would expect that net interest margin would improve again in the next half, so we've still got that in front of us. But then we've got headwinds from the the bank levy kicking in. Um, top line growth was okay, but not 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 stellar. But I mean, you're talking about Commonwealth Bank growing at about three to four percent for financial year 17. And I think that's probably about what you're going to see as a central case for 18. But with a five and a half percent dividend yield, fully frank, you add those together, it's not a Bad situation. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think the banks look okay at the moment. Obviously, the um, money laundering uh, situation complicates the, the, the situation. But uh, once again, back to the fundamentals, I think they look solid, but unspectacular.
1: Yeah, and uh, with the with the money laundering uh, case that Austrack uh, has brought against them, I suppose
0: the
1: the issue there is that uh, again, there's a, a there's a spectrum of outcomes. Uh, mm. So it's very difficult to, to quantify. People have taken all sorts of stabs at sort of, um, estimating uh, what the impact might be. Um, what's
0: your view? I think I would agree with you in that it's very hard to estimate, and I probably won't even try at this point. Right. Uh, <laughs> okay. So uh, for various reasons, I'll probably just uh, leave it at, um, leave it at uh, a situation where there's, yeah, there's a spectrum of outcomes. I'd suggest some of the initial estimates uh, uh, are unlikely, mm. but... Um, it certainly be a number greater than zero, but I think being less than a trillion. But uh, we'll wait and see. I guess <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: that is a, yes, a, quite a spectrum. Yeah, um, uh, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting uh, to see how that um, to that how that unfolds. So nine point nine billion, uh, basically scraping ten billion uh, for CBA um, as a result. And I guess we'll um, get updates in the various uh, shapes and, and forms that they come from from the other banks. Um, over um, the coming weeks uh, what are the bank uh, what other bank or, or banks um, in the sector um, do you think are interesting at the moment
0: well I think from the perspective of, of the big banks you really only get the, re- the the full report from combank you're only really getting trading updates uh, from the others um, I, I think at the moment probably the ANZ is interesting people from the perspective of probably having a Situation where they're looking at sort of a surplus capital position. So I think that's um, interest to investors. But obviously the other side of that is the reason they've got surplus capital looking to to, um, get to a surplus capital position is because they're selling assets. So I guess the other debate is how do they fill that hole. Um, But um, I mean, I think generally having that capital burden or that capital headwind lifted is a positive for the whole sector because I think uh, the situation is, I think, significantly better than I think the consensus feared a month ago in terms of the capital impost. So, um, unfortunately, now we had the... I guess we've had the AML issue for ComBank come over the top and probably we just look like we're going to get a little bit of clear runway for the banks. Right. Uh, And now we've had the the AML situation, so that's probably a bit unfortunate.
1: Yeah. Do do you think... um I mean, this this just feels like the, the, the questions around um, capital levels um, uh, and w- what it takes to be unquestionably strong regulatory uh, requirements, um, both in terms of um, uh, growth in, in new lending um, and then also capital held by uh, when it comes to APRA requirements and um, uh, the global regulations. Um, the last we got was sort of 2020 as a horizon for, I think, a 10.5% growth. Um, uh, Common Equity Tier 1 um, holding, um, which is basically the money they hold um, that, will stop, um, that would stop the bank getting into s- uh, serious difficulty. Um, but um, do you see an end in sight to this or do you think this will be a continuing rolling uh, scenario for them? Well, I,
0: I wouldn't say I'm completely confident about it, running, but I think we're in a position now in terms of what APRA said that we've basically got a fairly clear line of sight now. And we think the banks will be um, at or above that 10.5 target within 12 to 18 months. Hmm. So I think we've got a, a relatively uh, clear picture for now in terms of of capital. Um, so from that perspective, um, I think we can't. We can almost put that issue to bed. I think in terms of there's plenty of other things to worry about in terms of the banking sector. Yeah, so sure. I think capital is. Is, is basically done and, and, and i think that the banks are in a pretty sound solid position certainly going to be interesting uh, to see how it plays out
1: you're listening to the devils and details podcast from business insider australia our guest on the show this week is david cassidy uh, chief equity strategist at ubs okay let's uh, we've talked about the banks now let's talk about the miners um so, look, um, been a very interesting uh, year in on commodity markets, and I think uh, probably around September, October last year, um, we had this sort of uh, clarity that uh, uh, China, its slowdown in its in the in the rate of expansion of, of its economy, uh, had kind of come to a come to an end. We're looking at this now, remarkably, sort of six point seven. Uh, 5 to 7% GDP growth for this vast economy. Um, they've got elections uh, later on this year um, uh, and um, that's obviously very important for um, the policy outlook there. But it broadly um, things seem to have uh, stabilized uh, in China. Um, and David, you have um, I saw a research note from you recently, a rather interesting take on what this uh, means for uh, resources stocks because people have been wondering about, okay, With China slowing down, what does it mean for these big companies um, which employ so many people and um, oversee so much um, of Australia's exports? Um, So how do you see this now uh, working through?
0: Well, I think in terms of what I was trying to allude to in that that research piece, I think the volatility of the Chinese economy will not disappear, but I think it it is reducing. And I, I think we'll never eradicate commodity price volatility, but I think also off the back of that, reduce volatility in the Chinese economy, I think commodity price volatility will reduce to some extent. And I think what that should allow, um, or the theory anyway, is that I think it'll allow the market to focus on the very substantial cash flows that the big Australian miners that are really at the low end of the cost curve should be able to produce over the next few years. So I think that's my thesis, that um, volatility will, will always be there in commodity markets, but... I think to the extent that China um, seems to be managing its economy you know, reasonably well um, and there's still growth there, um, I, I expect that um, you know the focus on these cash flows and potential for capital management um, should um, become a, a dominant theme.
1: Yeah, it's certainly been interesting because after all of this investment period that they've been through, um, they now have these uh, incredibly sophisticated structures for being able to manage uh, output um, and um, I, I think I've heard people talk about well look, it's raining in a particular part of the Pilbara, so we need to uh, increase production in another to make sure that we hit um, a certain level of output um, and that you know, the, all of this infrastructure was built uh, and the path, the capabilities um, were built during um, the investment boom uh, which has given them, uh, I think to, it speaks very well to your point, it gives them this uh, much greater uh, level of control over um, the amount of activity um, and the the ability to to increase and reduce uh, uh, production to make sure that they're getting cash flow in the right area, but also controlling costs um, on the other side. Um, that, uh, they, that there's all sorts of ways that levers they can pull um, to to make sure the um, the expenses side is is well covered. Um, Dave. Uh, Commodity price volatility, Um, we're back at um, extraordinary highs for iron ore. Um, What are we at now?
2: Uh, 76-odd, so around about a four or five-month high. Um, Obviously, that's uh, after a 40% bounce over the last two months and – uh coking coal prices have uh have gone and mirrored that and that's uh probably not surprising because uh no rebar and, and and steel prices in china have been going through the roof uh, recently as well. So uh, it's all sort of uh, culminated to go and have this spectacular recovery after a, an even uglier uh, you no know, decline that we saw earlier this year. Uh I was just gonna ask you a question, David. After the uh the, the elections in China around November this year, obviously we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of investment being put in uh, infrastructure and you know, fixed assets uh, into China to spruce up the economy, uh, in lack of a better uh, better word, to, uh, to go and make it look good uh, before these elections. After that period, there's a lot of sort of speculation what that will entail for the Chinese economy and whether they'll maintain that sort of pump priming uh, that they're doing at the moment to go and, and roll out these infrastructure investments and whatnot. So I just wondering if you had a take uh, as to where that may uh, – how that will evolve and, and particularly outlook for the miners in relation to that.
0: Yeah, I think – I'd have to say I think some of that um – Conjecture around the post-election environment is a little bit overplayed. I think um, first, probably, is not really an election. Mm, uh, of course, I, I, I think it's um, a little For, bit of a transition. A yeah. um, so, from that perspective, I, I think the, the, the Chinese authorities are not going to let the economy fall off a cliff post, uh, you know, the, the um, fourth-quarter uh, leadership transition period. Um, I think if you look at the economy, the economy is already slowing. Uh, from, from, I guess, the, the rates we saw maybe um, late last year and early this year. But my point is it's it's a quite a managed slowdown and, and it's slowing probably at a more gradual rate than was feared perhaps three or four months ago and that's why commodities in part and resources have rallied. So I expect um, 2018 will be a slower year than 2017 uh, from the broad growth perspective and a commodity demand perspective, but I don't think it's going to be a, a dramatic collapse. I think it'll be fairly well managed. I still think there's an infrastructure program that will be ongoing. Even if you look at some of the leading indicators for property, they don't look that bad from our perspective into next year. So slower growth, absolutely. But I'm not a, a believer in a, a dramatic downshift sh- in Chinese growth post, post, post the election.
2: Yeah, um, that's that, yeah. probably a sensible uh, assessment. I can't imagine it's a – obviously, the Chinese uh, political uh, – uh, bureau, they'll be uh, they'll be making sure that they um, keep things in a re- relatively good shape because obviously. Firstly, the uh, the debt levels uh, of their companies, uh, a lot of their uh, particularly state-owned enterprises, are still very high, and they're trying to go and manage that. And they're also trying to go and foster that shift across to and have the households go and make a bigger share of uh, of the economy than what they currently is the place. Uh, so there's a whole lot of reasons why and I, I can't imagine that they would allow the growth to go and slip to you know sub sixes and you know risk you know political uh, upheaval, social unrest, and whatnot. Um, So, yeah, I I agree with your assessment that you're probably not going to go and see, you know, a sharp deceleration from what we're seeing at the moment.
1: Can can I ask what you do think about the debt levels? Um, Because I think something, depending on how you measure it, 240% of GDP, um, large.
0: Uh, It is large, but I think um, if anyone can manage those sorts of debt levels that aren't unprecedented in a a global context, but they are high, I think China can manage them. Um, I think a lot of the debt sits with the corporate sector and particularly the state-owned enterprises. Um, But I think probably you need to consider that as just part of the uh, government or, you know, federal government um, debt burden more so than actual private sector debt. I think it's really government debt at the end of the day. And from that perspective, um, with, you know, pretty pretty strong uh, trade account, current account, a capital account that's still managed. I think China's still got the capacity to to manage the process. I'm not say well, I won't say it's going to be completely incident-free, but I think China is still largely a a closed system. It's not really relying on global global f- funding. So I think from that perspective, it's always out there as a point of concern. But um, I, I expect it's it, 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 it's manageable. Um
1: as somebody put it to me during the week, I thought it was a great phrase, which is that you, you can't go broke owing yourself. Um, <laughs> okay. um, we might turn now to another vast, sprawling uh, organization with um, huge amounts of resources and um, control all, over all sorts of sectors. And it's um, uh, what used to be a bookstore on the Internet called Amazon, Um so there's all sorts of questions about how this is going to play out. Um, it's a fascinating company. Um, there's absolutely no denying. Um, uh, it, it, it really is. You know, it's an industrial logistics company, um, not a not a, not just a, a, an online retailer, which it is at the consumer-facing end. Um, you know, uh, it, it invests extremely heavily to the tune of billions of dollars um, uh, in, in losses that it runs. Uh, just on its delivery operations so something like uh, five six billion dollars it runs its um, uh, delivery and its shipping business um, at a loss of um, and that's in order to keep customers happy and keep them sat- satisfied um, so you think about you know a profit like a company that makes a profit of six billion dollars in Australia that's a that's a bank um, you know the entire profit of, of a large bank um, being being spent on 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 shipping, um, so fascinating for the retail sector here, and obviously very worrying for some of them um, David fascinated uh, to hear how you think this is uh, this is going to play out on who is going to be affected
0: Well, I think there's no doubt that in terms of the retail landscape, Amazon is going to take share and put downward pressure on margins. It's just a matter of how quickly and how much. Um, so I think from that perspective, the share market has done the rational thing to a degree this year and taken down the prices of most of the the retailers particularly the i guess the non food discretionary retailers um, I would think it's it's obviously amazon haven't really well, haven't started up yet so i see it as sort of a two to five year story or maybe a two to ten year story so from that perspective, I think they'll be sort of ebbs and flows in, in terms of the performance of the, the retailers on, on the stock market. So we wrote a piece, I think, a month or two ago suggesting that retailers are probably a little bit oversold short-term. You know, had a stock like Harvey Norman trade from $5 down to sub 3 50 I think it's back sort of more like four fifty now. 50 um, now. So you'll, you'll see sort of ebbs and flows. Um, I think the reality is for, you know, some of the retailers, things are still pretty good. And for others, even before the arrival of, uh, Amazon, things are already very tough and are probably only going to get tougher. So, I mean, a stock we sing- singled out in, in that report that we think is, you know, vulnerable um, because they're already uh, facing headwinds of some stock like Meijer. Mm-hmm. Uh, JB Hi-Fi is doing very nicely, very well-run retailer, but I think ultimately a lot of their product set is contestable. So I think they've got, they've got um, some challenges there uh, over the next sort of two to five years, maybe not so much in the short term. Um, there's maybe something like Harvey Norman, which you know we said we'd identified as being a bit oversold uh, a month or two ago, um, some of the sort of the white goods, brown goods, I think Amazon will be there, but I don't think it's going to be the focal point for, for Amazon. So maybe in that case, uh, there'll, be, there'll be impacts, but maybe not as big. Then you get to the food retailers. I don't think that's going to be a priority for Amazon in the first instance, and, and maybe to the extent that... Online is not really a new concept. I, I can buy my groceries online at the moment. I'm, I'm probably less convinced that that's going to be that disastrous uh, given the, the, the market position of you know, you know the, the big grocery change in Australia. So probably less inclined to think there's going to be a massive Im, impact there, but I guess we'll see.
1: Yeah, because it's, it, it's really interesting. I think one of the fascinating uh, Amazon events of recent uh, weeks has been what happened with the share price of Sears uh in the US um when you know uh, Sears like a little bit like my right department store um the market has been marking it down for some time share prices has been in a sort of long-term decline the um it, it, its own physical stores also in decline starting to shut down etc um and Amazon and other sort of products are, sort of have been eating away at that Um, But they did have a very popular home electronics uh, product, uh, a bit like we see in uh, Kmart or um, uh, Target here. They make kettles and toasters and that kind of thing. Uh, Sears decided that it would make this this product line uh, available through Amazon. And the share price went up 20% (laughs) on the news. Um, Now, small uptick uh, given the long-term sort of decline but nonetheless and this was in after hours trading because the um, the, the announcement came out after 5 p.m. Uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, but, so the stock went up but it was still up trading 10% up the next day. Uh, it closed 10% up the next day. So for me the interesting question there is about partnerships, distribution opportunities for companies in Australia. So you look at um, a grocery supplier or a supplier of any sort of uh, any sort of hard product or even food products, uh, and they decide to make their product available on um, the Amazon platform. Uh, and what it does is it opens the market for them, or it gives them distribution channel that distribution channels that they didn't have before. Uh, particularly if Amazon is willing to support them on price a little bit. Um, so um, are there any opportunities that you sort of think about in terms of partnering uh, when you look around the, the retail landscape, landscape and think about Amazon coming in here?
0: Um, well, I think possibly uh, um, at the big listed end, maybe not as obvious to me, but I certainly I think for you know, emerging businesses, it is a, a distribution channel that's going to be opening up. So I think from that perspective, it's good for the economy as a whole. And I think it's also good for consumers because you'll get, I guess, if not deflation, you'll certainly get disinflation in terms of goods prices. So I think Amazon coming in a lot of ways is, is, is potentially, as you say, good for the, the business sector and good for the consumer. So a lot of the focus has been on the emerging calamity in, in, in a few sort of listed retailers. Um, but I think, you know, for the economy as a whole, it's probably a, a net benefit.
1: Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. All right. Um let me turn quickly to um some of the other companies that you're looking at over reporting season. I think JB Hi Fi was one of the uh companies that you
0: picked as possibly having a beat on the way. Yeah, JB Hi Fi and Harvey Norman, we think um, you know, that the numbers will still be pretty good. Um so I guess the the concerns that will be there, the outlook into eighteen, I guess the market will be keen to have a look at that. Um I think we had some comments today from Nick Scarley which, which weren't looking terribly positive. So I think mm-hmm. the market, I think we've got JB Hi-Fi next week. i be interested to see their commentary about trading conditions in, in July and how they see them in the near term. But I think the underlying, they would have finished uh, FY17 FI in a pretty good clip. So from that perspective, that's why we had both JB Hi-Fi and and um, Harvey Norm on the, on the beat list. Uh, we think Qantas will be very strong again. I think they're still in the sweet spot um, in terms of both revenues and costs. You know, decent
1: um, dollar strength, uh, but cheap enough for people to come in here uh, yep. and s- tourists still yep. want to come here. Low oil prices. Yeah,
0: I think everything's going in the right direction. Very yep. fairly rational uh, comp- competitor now in, in, in Virgin. Um, so I think the duopoly is working, you know, in Qantas' favour. Uh, so I think that'll be good. Um, on the downside, uh, I mean, we like the company medium-term CSL, we think the numbers could be a little bit high into FY eighteen, so there may be some risk of um, some contentious consensus downgrade, just in terms of how bullish the consensus is for FY eighteen and how much is in the multiple. Uh, but but I think you know still is, thinking
2: is that partly a, a currency story? That's uh, that, that. Yeah, I think
0: it's up? a it's a mi- it's a mixture of um, FX, but also just the the size of the assumed growth we see in, in in the market at the moment over twenty percent for FY eighteen. We think it's a it's a big ask. And when you're already on 28 times that next year's number, there's not much margin for error there.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, look, um, thank you for all of that. I just want to ask, finish up with one general question. Um, when we get experts like yourself uh, on, it's always uh, good to step back and ask a sort of bigger picture question. And uh, I wanted to ask you um, what the most common error is or common sort of uh, way of thinking is that's a, that's problematic
0: when people are thinking about stocks. Um, well, I'm probably probably do my own industry a disservice, but I think possibly people get too caught up in the noise. <laughs> so, from that perspective, I think probably step back from from the noise and and don't get too caught up in the sentiment of the day, whether it be bullish or bearish, and and, and try and look at the the medium to longer term outlook for the company and, and the valuation and. Um, you just don't get too, much, too caught up in either the hype or the gloom.
1: What's your favourite way to, to value a stock?
0: Uh, I think there's no magical method. I, I think ultimately you've, you've got to probably have some assessment of um, what is a, a reasonable sort of trend level of earnings particularly if the business is is cyclical and look at the the PE on that level obviously earnings can move around a bit in the short term so I think you've got to have some sort of uh, gauge on where the the trend or mid-cycle earnings are and and look at a company um, that way Um, so from my perspective just good old PEs are as good as anything but yeah I think maybe have a, a pretty good view of whether the current earnings are uh, are a fair rep- representation of the maintainable cash flows of the business. So it sounds a little bit complicated, but I think pretty pretty simple stuff, really.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, are they going to be able to continue to make mm. the amount of money that they are uh, currently? Mm-hmm. And um, what how, how's, their, how's their cost base looking against them? Mm. Um, okay, look, really fascinating. And David, um, just quickly, uh, David Scott, that would be. Um, 50 shows. Uh, congratulations, you made it.
2: Raising the uh, – well, I've mean, not all 50. I've been away on a, a couple of occasions. But yeah, I'll raise the uh, microphone. We have the half-ton. Hopefully, we'll, uh, we'll get to the ton as well.
1: Yeah. So, look, sometimes when I tell people about this podcast, I, I do say to people, you know, it's a, uh, characterize it as inexplicably popular. Um, we have had some like pretty big rating shows, sort of ten, 000, twelve thousand. 12,000. Uh, people tuning in, which is, um, you know, for a Markets and Economics podcast, um, uh, um, I think it has, uh, shall we say, beaten expectations. Um, But um, a couple of my favorite episodes from back down the track, um, definitely the episode, The Day of Brexit. Ah, Uh, Stole my thunder. Yeah, um, because that all happened, obviously, in the morning our time. Nobody was expecting it. And we did the show. And I think we were, you could actually hear us a little bit out of breath. And uh, pr- pretty uh, dazed <laughs> as we did it uh, in the afternoon with Chris Weston from uh, from IG.
2: Yeah, so I remember that distinctly. Uh, Westy was uh, panting, uh, panting as as we all were during that uh, that podcast because it was just an absolutely epic day. I think anyone involved in financial markets and even those who weren't, uh, can go and attest that uh, it was the kind of uh, intraday volatility that had not been seen since the GFC. Um, I'm trying to think back to some of the other, other more memorables. I remember there was a great discussion we had with uh, Jared Currett CBA about uh, you know talking about uh, you know, this uh, clinging on to the AAA credit rating and you know, you know, this desire to go and maintain that. Uh, Pointing bank.
1: out that US, um, U.S. bonds have been downgraded and look at the price they're trading at.
2: Yeah, and, and talking through the process of you know, perhaps it's time to go and uh, spend and invest for the future, and that means we risk the, uh, the credit rating short term in order to go and have a better economy in the future. I thought it was a very great, uh, you know, a great episode as well and uh, very well thought through.
1: It was, uh, and we've had some great guests um, uh, who uh, make the show um uh, and they've been uh, they've been awesome um I think in particular um joe masters uh James Whelan who joined us for um for the Christmas special where we talked about uh, the best and worst calls of the year, and one of those was the guy from r b s who said uh, sell everything <laughs> um at the start of last year uh, which was uh, not very- He's still on a job. Yeah, he's still got a job. <laughs>
2: um,
1: so, look, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast uh, from Business Insider Australia. Our guest on the show this week uh, has been David Cassidy, uh, Chief Equity Strategist at UBS. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Uh, and I've been here with David Scott
2: Fantastic to be here as always Paul
1: You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au The show is produced by Rick Salter We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S You can find the show on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform where you can rate us and leave us a review We will catch you next time
2: podcast was
0: delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalized packaging. For more info, go to ozpost.com.au/podcast. That's ozpost.com.au/podcast.